Good morning again. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to be looking at uh, verses 14 through 22. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. And let's begin in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ and the promise that you will hold us fast. Pray that you would help us to acknowledge your lordship, to delight in Christ and in the gospel, and that you would grow us to be more like yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Syncretism. It is a word that represents the modern state of affairs in the church in America. Syncretism, give you a little definition from the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, is this, the attempt to combine different or opposite doctrines and practices, especially in reference to philosophical and religious systems. So syncretism basically is trying to, at least from a Christian perspective, merge Christianity with something else, some other philosophy, some other way of thinking. Christian missionaries have long warned us of the danger of syncretism when evangelizing people from other cultures. You may be uh, aware of the fact that some missionaries uh, in third world countries have been shocked and confused at how fast conversions can take place amongst unbelievers. They go to, perhaps maybe they're a new missionary, they go to a field and they begin sharing the gospel and all of a sudden, just left and right, people are repenting, quote-unquote, and trusting in Christ, quote-unquote. Countless stories have been told about a missionary who goes to one of these countries, shares the gospel, the locals immediately, quote-unquote, believe on Christ, but upon further reflection, they did no such thing. Why? Because of syncretism. Many Eastern religions, for example, are quite comfortable with their belief that there are thousands or even millions of gods. And so when you share the gospel with someone like this, they are more than happy to add Christ to their list of gods. They are more than happy to say, oh, I, I hear about a new God. Let me. What do I have to do to make this God happy? Okay, I'll add that God to the list of my gods. In their minds, they are just adding more fire insurance. And so it takes wisdom and skill for missionaries to be able to explain to the locals that accepting Christ has a corollary to it. And the corollary is when you accept Christ, you repudiate all false gods. Christ, of course, as we know, shares his lordship with nobody. One cannot truly be a Christian if one has a divided loyalty. And once we understand this, it becomes fairly easy to spot uh, this in foreign countries. Obviously, you cannot serve both Christ and the Hindu gods. You cannot serve Christ and the other gods. But while we may be able to look across the pond and see this easily in the lives of others, sometimes we struggle with our vision to see the very same problem in the states. It is not just foreigners who struggle with syncretism, 
but it is Americans. American Christianity does the same thing. We have, broadly speaking, in American Christianity, adopted syncretism in many ways. Jesus uh, repudiates this way of thinking in Matthew 6.24 when he simply says, you cannot serve God and money. You see the, the corollary here? If you do serve God, you must not serve something else. You must not worship. You must not adopt syncretism. So in this particular case, at least the one that Jesus is talking about here, uh, Jesus is not rebuking someone who forsakes, quote-unquote, Christianity, but for someone who tries to bring them together, who tries to say, I can do both. Jesus is saying here, if we want to add our modern vocabulary, that you cannot be a syncretist. You cannot combine these two competing religions. The love of money is a religion, and you cannot combine that with Christianity. It is one or the other. We can see, I think, perhaps, maybe, the danger of syncretism clearly in others, but can we readily identify in ourselves and even in our own culture, broadly speaking? The reality that synch- is that syncretism does exist here in America, but it looks a little bit different. The kind of syncretism that exists here is a merging of Christianity with any number of various philosophies of the world. We know that we are told um, by the Apostle Paul that we are to take every thought captive to Christ. There is to be no rogue thinking, so to speak. And of course, we quickly run to the fact that, well, this means in moral categories, and it does mean that. We ought to have pure thoughts and righteous thoughts. We ought not have lustful thoughts and so on and so forth. But it also means that my thinking, the way in which I think, the philosophy that undergirds my thinking ought to be in Christ-centered ways, not in ways after the pattern of the world. Syncretistic Christianity looks like Christianity blended together with things like existentialism, relativism, postmodernism, feminism, CRT, intersectionality, Darwinism, standpoint epistemology, Marxism, neo-Marxism, secular psychology, on and on and on and on and on and on and on. We could go. And so we would identify that we are in a very similar situation to the natives of other countries. We just happen to have different objects of worship. When the missionary goes to another country, they must clarify that the call to become a Christian necessarily requires you to put off worship to other gods. In the same way, Americans need to recognize that the call to become Christians necessarily requires us to put off allegiance to competing philosophies, competing worldviews, competing religions. What is Christianity if it is not devotion to the Lord? It is nothing if it is not that. If Christianity is not pure and undefiled devotion to Christ, then what is it, a hobby? Is that what we're doing here? The reason that we begin this passage this way is because Paul begins by explicitly warning against uh, idolatry. We are, as Christians, to forsake idolatry. That's pretty straightforward. I think we mostly understand what that means, hopefully. But then he goes on in the passage to say that you cannot partake of both the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. That's syncretism. 
You cannot say, we understand, oh, don't go all the way out and abandon Christianity and embrace idolatry. But he's saying you cannot even bring some of it in and keep claiming the name of Christian while you are adding these other worldviews to your Christianity. It is a blending of godly worship with idolatrous worship. And that's what we are called to avoid as believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We're going to look at this in three sections. In verses 14 through 15, there is a command. In 16 through 21, there is a principle. And then there is a final reality in verse 22. We have a rather straightforward command to start off this particular passage. In verses 14 through 15, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I I, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And verse 15 contains really the main verb for the entire paragraph. You are to flee idolatry. Now, what is... Uh, striking to us, though, is not so much the command to flee idolatry. We see that pretty clearly throughout all of Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We understand the sinfulness of idolatry. What is striking to us is this small little word, therefore. Now, as overused as this phrase is, there is it's still helpful. You, you've heard everyone say before, what is the therefore, therefore, okay? Okay. Well, what is it there for? There is a reason for this word here, and it is connecting the current text to the previous text. This word, therefore, implies the command is birthed out of some other reality. It implies that this passage should not be understood in isolation. Rather, it should be understood in its context. Okay, right? The word therefore implies that you're not supposed to just read verse 14 by itself. You're supposed to go before verse 14 and see why is he saying therefore flee idolatry. We might ask the question this way. Upon what basis am I able to flee from idolatry? Now, for those of you who are at the 9 a.m. service, you will understand immediately a connection between this text and that service. And that is, we talked about the need for God to act so that we can act. And so we have 
a statement where we are to act here, flee idolatry. Well, what basis can we do that on? We know that running away from idolatry is very hard. It is very difficult. In fact, I would say apart from God's grace, it is impossible. Where are we to find the spiritual resources or the spiritual equipment to run away from idolatry? The answer is found in the word, therefore. Do you recall last week's passage, specifically verse 13? Remember that? Let's go back to that for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You remember that? What we, we, that message was entitled, God is faithful, right? Because we said in verse 13, there were no commands. There were simply... Uh, indicative statements. They were realities. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. God will do this. God will do this. God will do this. God will do this. Okay? Now, let's put 13 and 14 together. Okay? Let's read 13 again. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, flee from idolatry. Do do, do you see that connection there? Because God has acted, therefore now I go and act. I think it nigh impossible for me to tell you or relay to you, or I think perhaps even relate to myself, the importance of this little word, therefore, and the implications it has for our theology. Perhaps it would help if I showed you elsewhere in Scripture where this identical relationship exists between God's redemption or God's act and human act, okay? You see it here in 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful. God won't let you be tempted. God will work. God will act. God is doing this. Therefore, flee idolatry. Do you know that this is the exact same way that the Ten Commandments begins? We have the Ten Commandments. Perhaps maybe you have it hanging up in your home somewhere. Um, But are you aware of how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see the relationship here? I am God, and I did this. Oh, and you therefore go and do this. This is the relationship between God's act and our act, and we see it right here in the passage in front of us. Sinclair Ferguson says this, When God made his covenant with his people... The connective between his actions and theirs was not if, but therefore. And you see that right in our current passage in 1 Corinthians 10. In contemporary terms, God stated the indicative, which is what he did, his commitment to his people. This in turn gave rise to the imperative or command 
the implications for the lifestyle of his people. The implications are the outworking of his declarations. Okay? So let me summarize this in uh, hopefully a way that might be somewhat memorable for us, and that is this. Command is rooted in promise. Divine commands to us are rooted and grounded in divine promises to us. Do you realize the hope of this? What... This, this is the promise of, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is the promise of, the work that I started in you, I will bring it to completion. You respond, if God is sovereign in my sanctification, why try? No, that is not the correct question. The correct question is this, if God is not sovereign in my sanctification, why try? What hope is there if God is not at work? What hope is there if God has left me to my own resources? What hope is there if God is incapable of bringing my sanctification to completion? What hope do I have of change if God is not underneath it all? And again, we saw this, but let's look at it again. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's not he might bring it to completion. It's not he will think about bringing it to completion. It is, he will bring it to completion. This hope is for all the redeemed. If you are in Christ, God will finish what he started. He will not leave you. He will, as we just sung a few moments ago, hold me fast. God has worked. God is working. God will continue to work. Therefore, flee idolatry. God won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. Therefore, flee idolatry. God will provide you with a way to escape your temptation. Therefore, flee idolatry. God is faithful. Therefore, flee idolatry. God will bring the work that he began in you to completion. Therefore, flee idolatry. Does that command hit you differently now? To see the context that this is coming out of? God is faithful. Therefore, go and flee idolatry. And he says this to people that he's saying, speak to sensible people. In other words, he's saying, guys, you know what I'm saying, okay? You're smart enough to understand this. He's saying, just listen to the logic. You're sensible people. You understand this. Flee idolatry because God is faithful and is working in you. And so he gives this command in the beginning of our passage today, and this command is nestled inside of a promise. It is, this command is, is uh, protected, and it is given meaning inside of a promise. And now he's going to give them a principle to understand this with. He says, here's the command, flee idolatry. Speaking to sensible people, you guys should be able to understand this. It's nestled inside of this promise that God is faithful to his own people. And now he gives to us a principle in two illustrations. Now, you're going to have to pay attention here a little bit because uh, we know Paul is very logical. And it may seem like he's getting off topic, but he's not. Okay. Remember, he is rebuking syncretism or blending of different worldviews together. 
and he's going to begin arguing through this bit by bit. Okay, so here's what he says. This is talking about communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Okay, so when you come here and we partake of communion together, he's saying, when you do that, you are participating with Christ. You are associating yourself with Christ. You are connecting yourself to Christ. Okay? And then he continues and says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Okay, so we all together are partaking of this. We are all making a declaration, and that declaration when you participate in communion is, I am of Christ. It's a declaration that you make. Here's what he's saying, put rather simply. Participation in communion equals association with Christ. Participation in communion, association with Christ. If you participate in communion, you are communicating to others that you believe this, okay? So you can't do this. You cannot say, oh yeah, I participate in communion every month, but it means nothing to me. You can't say that because your, your, your actions are betraying your words. You are by your very actions saying this means something to me. You are making a religious claim when you participate in communion. Now, that is true of communion, example one. Example two, Israel and their sacrifices. Same thing, okay? Look at what he says next. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, what? Here's his word again, participants in the altar. So what is he saying? If you participate in eating the sacrifice, what does that equal it equals an association with Israelite worship or an association with God. This is, this is kid stuff, right? If you go, you go to communion, you're claiming connection, association, fellowship with Christ. If you participate in Israelite worship, you're claiming a connection to Yahweh, okay? This is fairly straightforward what Paul is, is saying here. Um, so you cannot say, just like you couldn't say this with communion, you can't say as an Israelite... Oh, I participate in Israelite worship, and I eat the sacrifice, but it means nothing to me. I just do it for the what? No, you're claiming something. Your actions are uh, denying your words. Both examples are used to bring home one point, and that is this. Participation equals association. That's all he's saying. You participate in it. You're claiming association. That's the point of this whole section. Now, he does give one, uh, I don't know if I would say as strong as a caveat, but he, he does give one additional observation, and he says, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So what he's saying is... He's saying, now look, I'm not saying that the meat that they're using in pagan worship actually becomes evil. This, this is why Paul can say, if you take the meat out of the pagan context, you can eat it. 
Because what did Paul say in the conscience issues? If you go to the meat market, you can buy that meat that was sacrificed to idols, take it to your house and eat it, and you're fine. Now he says, if people have a problem with that, you you shouldn't do that because that's going to cause them to stumble. But it's okay because nothing happened. The, The DNA of the meat was not changed. I mean, meat is meat, okay? So Paul is saying, I'm not telling you that that something's changed with this meat. I'm just telling you that when you participate in a pagan ceremony, you're participating in a pagan ceremony. So don't go there and eat meat at sacrifice to idols when you're in the middle of a pagan worship service. This is how he's kind of distinguishing what he's saying here. When you put that meat in a pagan worship service, stay away. Don't participate in it. And he says rather clearly, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So what does this mean? It just simply means stop going to pagan worship services. Just don't go anymore. Just stop going to their pagan worship services. Here's the issue. They were attending these worship services where meat was offered to idols, and they believed they had Christian freedom to attend, and they would think, oh, this means nothing to me. I, I can go get a, a cheap meal here or whatever it might be. I can have some of this meat. I'm in the worship service. I'm in the temple participating, and it means nothing to me. And Paul says, while it may technically be true that the meat you're eating means nothing, you're still associating yourself with paganism, and that's got to stop. And you see how he's using these two illustrations? He's using the the first illustration of communion. When you participate in communion, you're making a statement. When Israelites participate in sacrifices, they're making a statement. Well, when you participate in pagan worship services, you're making a statement. That's, That's what he's saying. Jesus said it like this. No one can serve two masters. For he will either... Uh, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the principle here is this. Stop using your freedom as an excuse to participate in paganism. Now, why should they stop? Well, he gives us the reality and the reason for this in verse 22. He says... Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Are you stronger than God? Okay, what is verse 22 saying? Verse 22 is saying this. Do you really want to go there? Do you really want to mess with God this way? Do you really want to say Christian freedom means I have the right to participate in pagan worship. Is that what you want to say? Okay, are you stronger than God? Because be ready. This this, this is what he's saying here. Do you know who this God is that you want to mess with? Nadab and Abihu. Old Testament. We're going to worship God our way. Anyone know what happened to Nabon and Abihu? In a second, 
they were gone. You say, well, that's, I mean, that's just the God of the Old Testament, right? I mean, they're different gods, right? I mean, it's got angry God of the Old Testament, merciful, nice, passive God of the New Testament. Okay. Ananias and Sapphira, New Testament. What about them? Drop dead on the spot. Okay? What about the people in Revelation? In Revelation 6, 16. This is an interesting one. You say, well, Jesus is just all affirming. Okay? These are the people that are um, facing the wrath of God. And they are calling out to the mountains and rocks, and they are saying this, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from who? The wrath of the Lamb. You know who the Lamb is? Okay. It's Jesus. Okay? Revelation 19. Talking about Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ cares about worship. He's not messing around with worship. And so who are we to say we will blend the worship of the Lord? That's what happened with Nadab and Abihu, syncretism. That's what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Will you provoke the Lord to jealousy by engaging in idolatry? Why would you think that you could get away with it since he is, as this verse says, stronger than you? This doesn't undermine the fact that Christ is forgiving. He is. It's both and. You can face his wrath or you can flee from the wrath to come, as John the Baptist said, and hide in his mercy. So where do we go from here? Well, we open up today with some examples of syncretism. And I would like to remind us of why this passage so strongly rebukes syncretism. Because of verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is blending together. You say, I'm still a Christian. I haven't run away from Christianity. Okay, fine. But are you bringing in and supplementing it with something else outside of Christianity? That's what he's rebuking here. Paul is not rebuking those who abandon Christianity for paganism. Though those people get their fair share of rebuke and warnings in Scripture elsewhere. Instead, he's warning those who want to have their cake and eat it too. They want both the Lord and what comes from attending an idolatrous worship service or 
many of the, the various philosophies that we've talked about today. Now, by the way, I want to I give to you uh, an example from the Old Testament where we see syncretism at play. In fact, I think this is probably the foremost example in the Old Testament of syncretism. And again, the Bible does condemn people who completely forsake the Lord and go to idolatry, but this is concerned with people who want both. Can you think of an event, a monumental event in Israelite history where they were adopting syncretism? Anyone can think of that? The golden calf. You say, that's not syncretism. They were completely worshiping a false idol. No, they were not. Exodus 34, or sorry, 32. And he received, this is uh, Aaron, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the Lord, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. All capitals, Yahweh. You realize what the Israelites were doing here. They were worship. They, it was syncretism. They were not abandoning, quote-unquote, the worship of Yahweh, the worship of the Lord. The golden calf did not represent them, quote-unquote, completely turning away from the Lord. It represented them trying to, to bring these two things together, trying to merge them together into one so they could worship Yahweh through the golden calf. This is exactly what they were doing, and this is exactly what Paul is rebuking in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There is nothing new under the sun. We just keep doing the same things over and over and over again. Christians have warned for years the danger of merging these kinds of things together, of various philosophies, philosophies that are at their core anti-Christian. Christians have warned for years of uh, avoiding this, for example, with integrating uh, secular psychology into Christian counseling. It's more subtle than going all the way because you maintain all the Christian lingo and the Christian atmosphere and the Christian decor. And astute Christians have observed that this is nothing less than drinking the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. The term here is typically not syncretism, although it is that. The term here that it's been used is integrationism. It's integrating what the world believes about the nature of man and what the Bible says about the nature of man, and bringing those two things together. If we are going to avoid this, if we are going to avoid the errors of integrationism or of syncretism or of blending worship in ways that are displeasing to the Lord, then what we are going to have to do to combat this is do a good bit of worldview thinking. So what do I mean by worldview thinking? Worldview thinking simply means that we are taking the Bible and applying it to all of life. Okay? The world has taught us to treat our Christianity the same way that your child treats their picnic lunch. Okay? 
You don't let anything touch each other, okay? <laughs> right? You use those little compartment trays so the watermelon juice doesn't touch your hot dog bun and all this stuff, right? You know what I'm saying? You're keeping it all separate. And the world has taught us to do the same thing with Christianity, that we are to compartmentalize Christianity. That Christianity, or the Bible, is good for Sunday worship. Christianity, or the Bible, it, it, it's good to give you, quote-unquote, a little religion in your life. Christianity is good, but just keep it there, okay? When you come into the public realm... Just leave it behind. The rest of us do that. You, you can do it too. Leave it behind. Keep it compartmentalized. But this is not how we are supposed to view Christianity. Christianity must touch everything. Christianity must influence all of life. Or it isn't Christianity. It's a hobby. Do you, is that why we're here today? If this is a hobby, we probably have other things we could be doing right now. Okay? Christianity touches everything. If we are going to avoid syncretism, one thing we have to do is to think long and hard on specifically how the lordship of Christ impacts everything I do. How does the lordship of Christ impact the way that I parent, the way that I treat people, the way that I promote justice in the gate, the way that I counsel? Christianity impacts what I believe about the origins debate. It impacts what I believe about ethnicity and race. It impacts what I believe about war and peace Roles of men and women, the purpose of life, gender, sexuality, business, work, community, motherhood, fatherhood, music, the arts, entertainment, science, technology, education, communication, marriage, ethics, politics, hospitality, baking, cooking, cleaning, driving, writing. Christ has lordship over everything. There is not one rogue molecule in the universe. And the way you sweep the floor ought to be done to the glory of God. We don't do worldview thinking. And we need to do more of it. Children, Christ has lordship over you and the way that you obey your parents. The attitude you have when your parents ask you to clean your room whether you obey with joy or complaining over the way that you spend your time, whether you are seeking Christ, the way that you serve your siblings and how you treat them, the way that you help your family when guests come over to your house, and so on and so forth. Christ does not tolerate rivals. And one of the greatest tragedies is that there are going to be people that are going to find this out too late. And my prayer 
is that those people who find out too late, that none of them would be here right now. But I can't see your hearts. Christ is Lord over everything in your life. He is Lord of everything or he is Lord of nothing. Jesus Christ will not tolerate rivals. As the text says today, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? You really want to go there? May we evaluate every philosophy, every thought, every single thing we think, do, motivation, all of it, and bring everything captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we worship him. I have three points of application for us today. Number one, because God is faithful, which is in verse 13, not in today's passage, but because God is faithful, flee all forms of idolatry, syncretism, and integrationism. Do not marry the Bible with the spirit of the age or the the predominant way of thinking in our culture. Number two, think in worldview terms. How does a Christian worldview impact your home, work, community, dot, 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 etc.? Okay? Again, we're not trying to compartmentalize Scripture. We're trying to say, how does it affect the way that I balance my budget? How does it affect the way that I do my work? How does it affect the way I spend my time? And then the third one is take every thought action, and motivation captive to Christ. Acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of your life. Thank you, God, for today and your wisdom and your word. You are truly good. You are truly kind. And you are merciful and you're patient. And the great joy that we have is knowing that while you are a wrathful God, you have poured out that wrath on your Son, Jesus Christ. And for all of those who will repent and believe in the gospel, your wrath will not be abolished, but it will be averted to Christ so that it is poured out on him instead of us. May we cling to that hope. I pray that if there be anyone here who's not trusted in Christ, that they would not find out too late, but that they would repent and believe on the gospel, turning from their sins, turning from their pride, turning from their stubborn ways, and embracing humility and trust in you and you alone. We thank you for your kindness to us. In Christ's name, amen.